what motivates a negative action are delusions. So it follows logically, if you practice ethics and do not lie and do not steal and do not kill and do not harm and work on your mind and give up attachment and give up anger, who do you think benefits? The, the planet and sentient beings. This is the perfect method for how to stop the planet from uh, from 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 being from being destroyed. What else can you do? This is what I kept saying to Julie. What else can you do? I mean, of course, we think of political activity. Well, yes, of course, do political activity, and but and, and all it's doing is getting companies who are doing immoral things to stop doing immoral things. So you do you try to encourage other people to to, to have ethical behavior, ethical business plans, ethical comp, ethical things to run, and then you do your own ethics. That's it. It all comes down to ethics. It's total logic. That is the method. In other words, stop harming sentient beings. Stop. In other words, stop doing actions driven by delusions. That's the answer. Can you not see? That conclude going to demonstrations. That's the compassion wing. The wisdom wing is do it yourself. And the compassion wing is encourage others to do it. That's what work is. That's the wisdom wing and the compassion wing total. That's it. So it comes down to living in good ethics. That not just minding your own business and not caring about the planet. That is the only method that will help the planet. It's the only method that will help sentient beings. It's very simple, but we almost, we think it's more complicated. So the, the wisdom wing is stop doing harm and the compassion wing is to help others people stop doing harm, which includes going to demonstrations. And of course, as Julie said, you can't make most people do it. So what can you do? And the other point though, for Julie's point, you know, she said the, the most important thing we have in front of us is she's right. But my point is because Buddhism asserts other lifetimes, you know, by living in ethics, you not only take care of the, the planet, but you also take care of next life. So it's like win-win. So it comes down to that. Practice ethics, which is the wisdom wing, and benefit others by doing things, including demonstrations, including political activity. But like we're talking to Francis, not driven by some maniac view and obsessed with it and trying to make everybody think the same way as us, which is what we tend to do when we do political actions. And realizing, as Julie said, we can't make people change. So what to do? So you got to face the fact, Julie, 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 and everybody else. Indeed, the planet might collapse in 18 years. I mean, what what makes us think that, that won't happen? Things happen all the time. Buildings collapse. Those people in Florida did not expect their home to collapse. I promise you. Well, we don't expect the planet to collapse because we don't like, and this is also delusions, because we don't like suffering. We live in denial of the possibility of suffering. But part of the it's reality karma. of that, What? It's karma. What? Well, that's General what I'm talking Rubino. about. I don't mean to interrupt. It's karma. No, that's, all the answer. that's all I'm talking about, precisely. Yeah. Actions and results. Yeah. Actions and results. So, but the yeah. point I'm getting at too is because we have attachment to the planet or to our home or to our husband, we live in denial of the possibility that the, the planet or the, or, the, or, the, or the condo or the husband could drop dead. And that's where we suffer so badly. We can't, those people would not have believed their condo would fall down. People can't believe their husband could die. We can't believe that the planet could be disappeared as it's back, you know, it's, it's like too late after 18 years. Guess what people? not to be nihilistic about it, but part of the reality of suffering, the reality of life is to recognize that suffering results happen. 
So all we can do, and that's why if you're trying to be like the Bodhisattvas, you know the world is a mess, you know the world is a nightmare, but you don't give up. You stay perky and optimistic. That's, and you can only do that if you don't have attachment and anger. If you have attachment and anger, you either kill somebody or you kill yourself. That's why we suffer. So yes, Julie, the planet might well be collapsing. Meanwhile, what to do is live a good life, practice ethics, do what you can to help sentient beings and keep your mind perky and happy. That's the point. Because how can you help a person if you're full of rage? Look at Francis's point. It's a very good point. You can't help anybody, Francis, if you're full of rage and despair. You just want to punch people. So we've just got to keep being optimistic and perky. And that can only happen if we don't have delusions. That's why the first level of practice is practice ethics and give up delusions. That's the wisdom wing. Then you're qualified to help no matter how bad it is. That's what the bodhisattvas, they're full of optimism. That's the, that's the act. So we have to have the courage to face the reality that suffering happens. I mean, I remember one woman on, on one, you know, one of the talks, I said, I was going to say on one of the shows, it's like we're on television, you know, it's not a show, but it's like a show, isn't it? She, she, she said, please can you give me some methods this is bringing up um, Bruce's, uh, David's point. How can I live in the moment? She said, all I do think is day and night, think about if my husband could leave, could husband could die. How can I live in the moment? I said, don't want to live in the moment. I was going to say bugger live in the moment. We can say that in Australia. Americans get upset, but that's easy. That's common language for Australians. Bugger the, mo the, the living in the moment, I nearly wanted to say, but she was an American, so I didn't. So I said, don't forget about the, the living in the moment. I said, just face the fact that he will die. And then I said, and then, then if you wake up in the morning, you're still there. It's a bonus and you're happy. I said, it's a very, it's a much more direct view. You're living in, you're seeing reality. And reality, we, we think we shouldn't see reality because it makes us depressed. But then that's why we get depressed is because we can't bear reality. So we live in a fantasy land. That's what attachment is. If only, why not? How dare? That's attachment and anger talking. But if you accept this is what happens, then you stay optimistic and perky and you do what you can. You know, even if ever, if 17 of those people in that tent are going to die with their legs broken and the blood and gore everywhere, you don't just go, oh, well, let them die. You do everything you can. And when one person dies, you go to the next person and help them. This is all we can do all we can do but you can't be like that if you have attachment and fear and anger and despair and this is not being critical or negative I mean, this is how we are that's why the wisdom wing is fundamentally necessary first that's giving up the delusions and practicing ethics that's it you know and that's the hard work and that qualif that one brings us more contentment and more fulfillment and two qualifies us to help others that's it that's the essence of it anyway any other questions my, my policy is, even if you're drowning, you might as well stay perky because then you might be an opportunity to, to, to get out, you know, but if you start panicking, you've lost the plot and everybody drowns after you. You might as well stay perky even if you're drowning because you never know. That's the only, it's my policy in life. That's wonderful. Thank you. Oh, Got to remember that one. Yes. <laughs> Um, Go on, what else? We did have a couple of questions, Venerable Rubina. Um, Lakshmi is asking about um, how to recognize authentic compassion, which is compassion and wisdom, um, because compassion and wisdom may not look like 
what the ego expects compassion to look like. No, exactly, exactly. Because compassion at the moment for us is very sentimental compassion. It's mixed with a lot of kind of gooey feelings. And that's not being rude about us. And that's because of attachment. When there's less attachment, the compassion is more powerful and it's kind of got iron in it. And it can be very tough compassion. You don't get, you're not weak when you've got strong compassion. Whereas that's the other, that's exactly what we were talking, like Rosie's point. We mix, or like, you know, what's his name's point? The other man, where is he? I can't see him. Um, uh, Christopher, I think it was his point. We really confuse attachment and kindness. But when you've got compassion, it's fierce, you know, it's fierce and powerful and you see the problem and you don't like, you know, again, you think about the analogy of that person. If you're a qualified surgeon and you've got this enthusiasm to help and you join Doctors Sans Frontieres, you're not weak and wishy-washy. You don't kind of faint when you see the blood. You've got some guts, you've got some balls, you know, and you're in there and it's almost like the more suffering, the better. Think like that. Your compassion isn't weak. You couldn't afford to have weak compassion if you see all this blood and guts. You just got to use the skills you've learned and be single pointed and help a person, regardless of the shouting and the yelling and the tears and the crying. But if you've got lots of attachment and lots of despair, you won't be able to cope. That's because of attachment and aversion. This is not the way we talk in our culture. But when we get to understand this Buddha's view, it's a revelation, I tell you. And the other point about this is really clear is you see, we only have compassion for the gross suffering. But that's what we've got to understand when we do the earlier practice in the wisdom wing, that there are subtler levels of suffering. And this is where it's very confusing for us because we only think of the really heavy suffering, you know. But the subtler level of suffering, Buddha calls it the suffering of change. And that's what we call happiness. Well, the analogy is like this. The suffering of suffering is that if you're a junkie, and that's the default mode, if you've got attachment, you're a junkie. Basically, you've got the mind of a junkie. You've got this emotional hunger that's always wanting something nice. So the suffering of suffering is when you can't get what you want. It's like you're a junkie who can't get the junk. Well, guess what? When you get the junk, that's what you think is happiness. But anybody looking on can see that there's just more suffering. You look at the torture and you actually call that happiness when you get the heroin fix. Anybody looking on can see that it's a subtler, more pervasive level of suffering because the getting of the relief of the pain of not having the junk leads to the nightmare of craving even more junk and, get, and not getting it again. So it's like you've got to understand the suffering of suffering, which is when attachment does get what it wants. But it's just kind of allaying temporarily the not having the junk again. There's a very subtle level of suffering. And we've all got that one, but we all think we're happy. We all think we don't suffer. But this is a much subtler suffering, and it's the suffering of attachment. This is a heavier one. So then to have compassion. So if we look in the world and we see, you know, some people who are poor and suffering and struggling, and we see some people who are happy and lovely and everything's beautiful, it would sound like a joke to say that the ones who are happy are actually the ones who need more compassion. It's a bit like you see the person who's screaming and yelling because they have no heroin. They look like they're suffering, right? And you see the other person who's just done their heroin shot, they look really blissful. So you'd think, well, why should I have compassion for the person who just has heroin shot? Because very soon you'll be like the first person. That's why. And that's what's really hard to see. That's why we can't see that we're suffering because attachment is so pervasive and so subtle and it's hard to see.
So that's what renunciation means, giving up suffering and its causes. And this is a really powerful level of practice. And as Rinpoche says, you've got renunciation of suffering and its causes. When just the thought of another moment of attachment is so repulsive, it's like being in a septic tank. But that's what, and that's, this is just literally a much subtler level of practice. But at least we can temporarily, at least we can intellectually understand it, you know. And of course, the most pervasive suffering, and they call it all pervasive suffering, is the fact that we are getting reborn in the first place in a body of attachment, living in a world like a body of a junkie, the five senses, living in a world which is made of heroin, which to survive, you are compelled to ingest. That's all pervasive suffering. So the solution to the first kind of suffering, which is when the bad things happen, is stop killing, stealing and lying, living in good ethics. The, the, the solution to the second kind of suffering, the suffering of change, is to get rid of attachment. And the solution to the third kind of suffering is to realize emptiness and get the hell out of samsara altogether. So it's subtler, subtler, ever more subtle levels. And all we can do is go one step at a time, you know. But I thought what I wanted to talk about is some of the techniques, like looking into these approach to achieving compassion. Like all these techniques is gradual, step by step. And they're all these kind of, kind of, they're like sort of like cognitive therapy type techniques this using logic and analysis because ego is so primordial and ego and ego's delusions are so sneaky and tricky you've got to use clear wisdom to argue with them you know so on the compassion wing the start the, the goal is to achieve this amazing paradigm shift in the mind that's called bodhicitta and that's i mean we just use the sanskrit for this because it just sounds so boring to use the english it means awakening thought which is kind of boring you get used to it i suppose but bodhicitta is referring to this outrageous attitude in the mind it's not equivalent to compassion it's the culmination of compassion and the only way to say it if you're a bodhisattva basically it's what the world calls a saint like ridiculously good ridiculously would sacrifice their life for anybody you know outrageously amazingly Amazing. So this bodhicitta is insane. If you hear Lama Zopa Rinpoche talking about the qualities of a person who's got bodhicitta, it's like it's, it's like science fiction for us. Psychologically speaking, we wouldn't posit anything even remotely possible. Because by this point, the person might not yet have realized emptiness. So they're still, you know, in samsara technically, but their levels of love and compassion are so tremendous that the best we can do is try and imagine. Because, I mean, the, when we talk about lots of compassion, the best we can do is think of what we could think of as a lot of compassion. We can't imagine what it's like. So when you read the qualities of what a person would be if they had this compassion, it really does sound like science fiction to us, you know. So like all of these practices, they're gradual. So the foundation practice, if you're wanting to develop love and compassion, then finally bodhicitta. Oh, sorry, what is bodhicitta? Bodhicitta is this, 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 it's, it's got two parts. When you've got it, finally, only others are in the front of your mind. This sounds very bizarre to us. You'd be called mentally ill if we, if we think this way in our culture. You'd only have the thought of others. In, like, in other words, like a, a great example, a mother for her child. A mother for her child or a father knows their job description. So if they see their child suffering, they're not looking around wondering who's going to take care of the child because they know it's their job. 
That's a bodhisattva. Their job description is like to take care of whoever's in front of them. It's just their job. They've, they've perfected these levels of love and compassion to degrees that you can't even imagine. And they made this paradigm shift where now others only are in the front of their mind, if you can try and imagine that. Which of course is like mentally ill for us because we factor in, you've got to have attachment and all the rest to be a normal person, not for the Buddha. So there's two main paths to bodhicitta. One is this constant, natural, spontaneous wish to benefit whoever's in front of you. The ant, the dog, the pedophile, the child, whoever. It's your job, you know, and you'll have the wisdom to know how to help, which can include tough love. Second, you've got the bodhisattva's got this long-term goal of never giving up, perfecting their mind, ridding the delusions and getting, getting all the virtues, becoming a Buddha, no matter how many lifetimes it takes. They're on the they're on the case for as long term, no matter how long it takes. So okay, so the lead up to that, what come what's that the culmination of is this development of these different techniques, which I'll talk about, and then you develop this extraordinary level of love, which is defined as may you be happy. It's a delight in someone's happiness. Compassion is may you not suffer. Empathy with someone suffering. I think in psychological terms, people have all these different definitions and they distinguish between attachment and compassion, but not in this terms here. Compassion and empathy are the same. As you see someone suffering and you, you know, you wish they didn't suffer. And of course, you can grow that. That's the point, to limitless degrees. But then that leads to this really outrageous level of compassion, which is unique to the bodhisattva path, which is they call literally, it's a technical term, great compassion. <clears throat> Mahakaruna in Sanskrit. <clears throat> Literally, it's not only, oh my God, look at that suffering, but it's it's also, what can I do to fix it? <clears throat> That's the brave attitude of the Bodhisattva. That's the unique characteristic of the Bodhisattva's compassion. I mean, you can have incredible compassion. You see suffering and you have a, you have real empathy. But the next one is automatically, it's my job. And that must be cultivated. That's That's to be cultivated. That's incredible. It's like the, the sense of responsibility. His Holiness sometimes used to call it universal responsibility. That has to be cultivated. And that's the unique characteristic of the brave attitude of the Bodhisattva. It's my job. So, okay, what's the starting point in these series of techniques? Over the centuries of these two practices, the Tibetans coming from the Indians, these two techniques, one is called the six causes and one result, and one is called exchanging self for others. It's the more radical approach, which all the Tibetans love, you know, it's their main practice. So the starting point is this practice, the foundation practice, and this already is outrageous. I mean, you can spend the next hour, we're together on just this one. It's called simply equanimity. So this term is used in different stages of your practice. In the earlier stages in the wisdom wing, when you've got equanimity as a result of controlling your body, your speech, and your mind, in other words, living in good ethics, you develop a really a real sense of stability in your mind. And that what's, that's what brings contentment and joy. You're very joyful and stable. Your mind's not up and down like a yo-yo, you know? I always joke, but I don't joke. We're all bipolar. It's just a question of degree. Up and down. We're all up and down like yo-yos, you know. And if we've got it seriously, the world calls it bipolar. If we've got it normal, then Buddha calls it mental samsara. We're all the same. 
So when your mind's more stable because your body and speech are controlled, you've controlled the servants of your mind. And now you're really on the case being your own therapist, controlling the attachment and the anger. And you've become a more, more easygoing person. You've got real genuine equanimity in your heart. And in a way, as His Holiness said one time, that sounds kind of boring. We love the up and down dramas, you know, but it sounds boring. But the mind is joyful. That kind of equanimity is incredible. But here is a distinctly different equanimity. This is in relation to sentient beings. So here, the equanimity we're trying to cultivate is, that, is, if, is, is such that when you've got it, it's this heartfelt um, recognition that friend, enemy, and stranger, and there's no fourth category in the universe, we'll describe this, that friend, enemy, and stranger are equal to each other from one point of view, it's quite precise. In all these terms, we they're very kind of, we see them all as very wishy-washy, but you know, Buddhism is very precise in its analysis and its definitions. So this economy is very precise. It's this recognition, a heartfelt recognition, when you've got it, you've got to practice, that friend, enemy, and stranger are equal to each other from one point of view. That they all equally want happiness and don't want suffering. That precisely is equanimity. So we have to cultivate this. So why? It's crucial. Because why? Because we want to, because what is love? Love is, may you be happy. Compassion is, may you not suffer. So what we're trying to cultivate in the compassion wing is love, may you be happy, and compassion, may you not suffer for every single sentient being. The wackos, the harmers, the politicians, the pedophiles, the psychopaths, the ants, the rats, the lot, as nutty as it sounds. But so the logic for beginning to cultivate this is that you've got to recognize that right now, the way the ones we want to be happy, the ones we love, are only the objects of attachment. So what is a friend? Friend, by definition, is a person who is the object of my attachment and who does what my attachment wants, who fulfills my needs. An enemy, and we mightn't use that word, but get the point, is a, an object of my aversion or anger who necessarily doesn't do what my attachment wants. Think about it. It's so clear. They mainly preoccupy our lives, you know. The few beloveds who do what our attachment wants, whom we happen to have love for, they're the only ones we do want to be happy. And then the ones who don't proactively don't do what I want, the politicians, all these naughty people Francis is trying to change, all the wicked people who are ruining the environment, all the, all the rest of them, they proactively don't do what my attachment wants. They don't fulfill my attachment's needs. So they're in the enemy category. And how do I feel about them? I have aversion to them. Aversion is the bare bones state of mind behind anger and depression. So that's the friends and the enemies. Now, then you've got 99.999% of the rest of the universe. And who are they? They are called strangers. And who are they by definition? Those who neither do what my attachment wants, nor don't do what my attachment wants. In other words, they, we, and so how do we feel about them? Indifference. So we have attachment for the beloveds. We have aversion for those who directly harm me or disagree with me or have the wrong politics. And we simply do not care about 99.999% of the universe. Who could be more 
more evil than the rest, but we don't care because they don't affect us. That's my point to Francis. It sounds a bit brutal when I said it, that, you know, we suddenly start, when it, when it affects us, we then start to have compassion. Babies have been stolen and raped and attacked and killed for centuries, but it's only when it's our baby or our people's baby, then we start having compassion, then we start acting. I mean, our next door neighbor could be a pedophile, but we do not care because they don't touch us. We're like that, you know. Our compassion right now is based on our attachment. So anyway, the, the world is made of friends, enemies, and strangers. There's no fourth category. It's very sobering to hear this. And these labels, I mean, we should also be embarrassed how self-centered it is. They're all completely, these, these definitions, these labels, these categories are solely in terms of how they affect me. That's it. I mean, we should be embarrassed. This is the world. Everybody does it. Monkeys, dogs, humans, the works, you know. I always tell the story about the strangers. Uh, if you've heard it before, I don't want to bore you with it, having seen it again. I was reading my iPad one day, the New York Times. And on my, on my iPad, I read all my newspapers on my iPad, my mini iPad. So on the right-hand corner, there was a, one heading, 350 people die in ferry accident in Tasmania. Well, of course, that's my people, Australia, right? I got a shock. I thought, oh, no. I was imagining the princess something or other drowning in, the, in the, the sea between Hobart or wherever it is in Melbourne, that boat, right? And I thought, oh, no. And I looked at it and it said, not Tasmania, Tanzania. And I went, oh, it's okay. Because it wasn't my people. So, of course, I had compassion. I read the story. But that's exactly how we all are. We have our people and we have people who aren't our people. So the, the vast majority for all of us of the universe are strangers. So we have attachment to the beloveds, we have aversion to the ones who don't do what we want and we simply do not care about everybody else. Now, we mightn't think we think this way, but I'm sorry, look at the world, you know, look at the world. And it's just how we all are. So this is kind of radical because this is the Bodhisattva level. Because to think that we've got to, got to give up this and really, and we've got to try and love compassion for everybody. I mean, it seems like exhausting. What does Buddha want from us, you know? But he's just, all he says is, this is our potential. So the point is this, at the moment, based on ego, I do have love, but only for the friends. I do have compassion, but only, so in other words, my love and compassion are contingent upon their doing what my attachment wants. They've got strings attached, as we say beautifully. They're unstable, as Lama Zopa says. So once we, so what we're trying to do is completely shift the logic from, I only want my beloveds to be happy, to, I want everybody to be happy. And the logic is not, oh, because they do what I want. It's because, guess what? They all want to be happy. That's what equanimity is, trying to recognize this. And this is huge. And it demands a lot of clear, intelligent thinking, not wishy-washy, gooey feelings, you know. But the first thing we'll say, like, I mean, always, you know, so I can be thinking as I'm talking even. Think now, as I'm even talking, have in front of you, right eyeball to eyeball, have a person who is really harming you right now. The more they're harming you, the better for the, this contemplation, if you can bear it. Or a person you haven't forgiven in your life who's really harmed you. And everybody in this room has got a person who's harmed them, if not more than one. There's no question. We've all got karma with some people and we've got some people who do harm to us. Real, genuine harm. There's no argument there. That's the object of your aversion. So visualize them.
as we're doing this discussion. Think of them, have them in your mind. Eyeball. Just to the left in front of you, you put your beloved in, in your mind. The person. crazy sometimes but in general put your beloved to the left and to the right put a person whose face you know just enough like a person on the zoom here a person you whose face you know just enough but you don't know anything about them they don't touch your life that's the stranger so we did these meditations I mean, you can do this really intensively in many points of view and every word i'm saying here is part of the, what is the approach you know you're arguing with ego's misconception that the logic now default logic for why i want you to be happy is because you make me happy and the all buddha saying is that's that's narrow-minded the logic we're trying to shift it to which is what equanimity is is that the reason for wanting a person to be happy which is to love them the definition of love is may you be happy is not because you make me happy it's because you want to be happy this is stupendous already this is huge you know so let's say you've got some ugly politician right let's say francis has got the, the whoever she ever politician she thinks is behind all this dreadful business has them in the in the middle in the, has the enemy right in front of her and then you say to yourself well you know francis you say to yourself he wants to be happy just like my beloved friend but the first thing we say is what do you mean he wants to be happy he doesn't deserve it now we can spend the rest of the hour on just this so let's analyze it this is our instinct what do you mean he wants to be happy? He doesn't deserve it. What do you mean he wants to be happy? What do you mean the pedophile wants to be happy? What we hear when we hear that is, oh, let him go. It's okay. He wants to be happy. No, that's not what's being said. That's not what's being said. And you won't understand that until you've done the wisdom wing. It's not saying that, not in the slightest. It's getting, in other words, doing this meditation, these meditations, is sort of getting yourself out of the equation. This is huge because we are totally in the equation right now. By definition, a friend, enemy, and stranger are defined in terms of how or if they fulfill my needs. So we're totally in the equation. We've got to get ourselves out of it. See these three people as completely separate people from me, and they are separate. But this is a trouble. Look at attachment. Look at a mother with her child. She's so attached to this child, she thinks it's another limb of her own. I mean, this is how attachment is. It's like a vampire that believes and clings, believes that person belongs to me. They, I own them. Look at how really insane attachment is when you can manipulate people and possess people. Look at the world, you know. So we're trying to get out of the equation here. See these three people as separate. So then you've got your friend, you have your enemy, and you have your stranger. Already just get yourself separate. It's very profound. And this, so let's just prove the logic of, of um, how what, the way we think now is just so foolish, you know? So I always use a silly example of, let's say, I mean, who's my boyfriend? Let's say, I don't know. Where's a boyfriend here? I need a boyfriend. I've got all these girls here. Oh, Lou will do. Okay, Lou. Lou will do. Lou will do. Lou's in Florida. So pretend Lou's my boyfriend. Okay. No, pretend, sorry. He's 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 uh he's Rosetta's friend. And and Lou and they and Lou lives down the road at number seven. I always use a silly example. It's a good one. 
And Rosetta's my friend too. And she tells me, oh, poor Lou, you know, because Rosetta's a friend with Lou, but I don't know Lou. He's a stranger. He's a bloke down at number six. Or maybe I said number seven, I forget. So Rosetta tells me, you know, Rabina, he has these terrible headaches. And I try to be sympathetic because, I mean, Rosetta's my friend. Oh, really, does he? Poor thing. But within about a minute, past the tea, Rosetta, and I forget all about boring old Lou because I don't know Lou because Lou hasn't touched my life. Think about this. He hasn't touched my life. I don't even know the bloke. I vaguely know him. I've seen his face, you know, but that's about it. He has not done anything to harm me and he has done nothing to help me. Therefore, he's what's called a stranger and therefore I have indifference. Of course, we can struggle without too much work to have compassion for strangers, but it doesn't last. We go back to our friends again, you know, or our enemies because they're the ones who occupy our minds. So now let's say I meet Lou and we fall in love and I move into number six. Now, suddenly, look at my compassion. Unbelievable. I stay up day and night. I spend money on doctors. I cry when he suffers. Look at the compassion I'm having now because of Lou's headaches. Now, look at the difference. Look at the difference before. And this is the point. This is the logic now. When you ask Lou when he was my stranger about his headaches, he will tell you they are unbearable. And then now you ask Lou when he's my beloved about his headaches, he will tell you they are unbearable. So Lou, his headaches are terrible, whether he's my friend or my stranger. I have got nothing to do with it, but I only notice Lou's headaches when he's my beloved. And that's how we are. I mean, it's completely self-centered. But it's, look how hard it is to have compassion. Let's say now even more, let's say for some smelly person on the street who's demanding your money and your aversion is arising, you know. Because I have been offended. But if that were your boy, if that were your child. So in other words, we define people in terms of, and therefore we care about them or don't, only in terms of how they affect us. I mean, we really should be embarrassed at how selfish, how self-centered we are, you know, but this is the universe. No one questions it. We just call it normal. So now let's say Lou gets sick of me and chucks me out of number six and he moves Rosetta in. So now where does Lou go? Lou is now in the, is in the enemy category. I hope he suffers with his boring old headaches. So one minute, I don't care. Next minute, I'm full of compassion. Next minute, I hope he suffers. He is not different. He is the friend one minute, the stranger another minute, and an enemy another minute. He is the same. He doesn't want to suffer, and he wants to be happy. It's so logical, and we've got to see this logic past ourselves. So then you think, well, I've got to try and love and have compassion for all these people. Well, yes, that we're aiming for. That's what we're getting one step at a time though. But equanimity is the foundation, the logical basis, the foundation upon which we can grow valid love and compassion slowly, slowly, according to our capacity, you know, which then culminates in bodhicitta. But there's so much stuff there. It's like a minefield for us. Because like I said, one of the first things is when someone says, well, you know, Rabina, Lou wants to be happy after he's just left me and I've sacrificed my life for him. And my first instinct is, "How? what the fuck do you mean he wants to be happy? Look at it. We think this. What do you mean he wants to be happy? 
he doesn't deserve it. So let's look at deserve. This is so heavy, you know, which it's proof. It's proof. It's proof that it's self-centered because when he was a stranger, it was the same fellow. He had the same delusions. He hasn't learned any new delusions, just that I'm the object of them now. That's all. He's got the same delusions. But when he's your friend, see, this is the thing, when attachment kicks in and attachment makes Lou look divine and then Lou's attachment for me and then makes me feel, wow, I must be so special because he's looking at me like, you know, like I'm, a, like I'm a goddess. So you get so excited, full of love and compassion. And of course, you, it's easy to have love and compassion for a person when uh, you are feeling attached. And this is the thing about it, even a mother. Think about this. Mothers are like famous examples of what they will do for their babies, you know. Think about this, you know. You, we hear about some mothers who kill their babies, who let them starve to death. Well, guess what? It's because of attachment, meaning that mother, every mother's got attachment, there's no question, but they've also got love, and that's the saving grace. Now, I'm glad my mother had some attachment for me because she would have killed me otherwise. So think about this. If to be able to have love with no attachment, that's only the Bodhisattva. So then just as well, almost like a joke, just as well we've got attachment. If you've got a baby, he's going to shit in their nappy every night and you have to spend all night getting up and down for them and, and they're sick and they're horrible and you think of them day and night. I can't imagine it. So that's attachment that drives you. But because you're attached, it's easy to love somebody. It's easy to want them to be happy. But guess what? If you don't have attachment for that baby, I have such compassion for those mothers. They get to give birth to this thing they've got no feeling, no connection for, only aversion. Mothers have that, but they dare not say it because they're criticized as being a monster. But that can be possible. You can give birth to a person you can't stand due to karma, you know. You can easily, many people give birth to be people they can't stand. But they, we think they're weird. They, we, they think they're a monster, but that's just karma. So imagine how much harder it would be if that baby appears as ugly to you and while it's crying and shitting and snappy and you've got to try and help it every time. This is exhausting. So when you've got attachment for it, it's easy to love them, you know. So what we're trying to do here is have love without attachment. Oh, my God, how exhausting. Because beings want to be happy. And you've got so much of this, as you grow it from this equanimity, you've got those few stages to go, that all you do is like every, they are really like your child. You see them, you understand their mind, and you have empathy, and you only want to help them. I mean, this is stupendous, you know. And it's stable. When you've got it like this to the degree that these body suffers, and we, we haven't gone through all the stages, of course, there's like 11 little techniques you've got to go through. It takes years, if not lifetimes. It's stable. It's like a rock of Gibraltar. It's not just flimsy. You know, we talk about often having a meditation and you have some wonderful feelings of compassion for people. We think of it as an experience. And then when you're out of meditation, you want to shout at your boyfriend again. Where does your compassion go? Down the toilet. It's because it's not stable. So these are the things that, these are the qualities we're trying to get cultivate in a stable way to the point where you've got bodhicitta, where you've just got this immense love great compassion love great compassion great love for all sentient beings i mean it's like extraordinary amazing but one step at a time you know all we can do is go one step at a time anyway any questions about equanimity or anything i've just discussed any questions folks we've got a question here from pia um about suffering um yeah 
Pia, I'm afraid I, I don't quite understand. Would you like to ask your question about where suffering comes from? Yes, Pia, good. Talk yes. to me, sweetheart. Hi, hi again. Um, well, being pondering, sort of understanding this. So, on one level, this idea that that um, the nature of existence is suffering, and we've been talking about that suffering coming from the karmic seeds of our attachments and aversions. And I'm kind of thinking of a metaphor where those attachments and aversions are like you've, you've got this clear water and then the attachments and aversions and our thinking and ego and all that stuff that creates our experience of suffering are like dirt in the water. But I'm also hearing you can remove those. So right. if we can remove those, then what we're left with is crystal clear water. Nicely. So then what is that crystal clear water? And is that telling um, me that fundamentally life is, is joy that, and bliss? No, that, okay, good question. So when we understand this Buddhist analysis of the mind that divides all the thousands of states of mind into these three categories, we've got the neurotic, deluded, eye-based, fear-based, disturbing emotions. And when they're, and then we've got the valid states of mind, love, empathy, compassion, kindness. And then the third category, are, I call them the mechanics of the mind, whether you're a murderer or a meditator, you need good concentration. So a lot of those like concentration, discrimination, intention, attention, good memory, these are qualities that are crucial to have and you get you develop those in meditation, but they are neither good nor bad in their character. It's a question of how you use them. So a murderer needs good concentration and a meditator needs good concentration. So they've got these three categories. So when you've done the job of, say, even some, to some degree of, yes, removing the poison from the pollution from the water, this is the point. Even before you get all the way to bodhicitta or even realizing emptiness, or just whatever. But let's know, as you do get to that point, where you, let's say you've realized emptiness, you've cut the root of delusions, then you now have blissful, clear mind. So, but what does that mean? That means you have the virtues, they are at the core of our being, Pia. At the moment, our virtues are dragged down and polluted by the delusions. But once the delusions are gone, you only have virtue. You only have love, clarity, kindness, wisdom, and yes, the bonus is bliss because the virtuous states of mind are in the nature of happiness. Yes. That's the point. So as you remove the pollution, which are in the nature of misery, then you get more happy and more loving and more kind and more joyful. And there's no question. They're the conventional nature of the mind, joy and bliss, which includes love and compassion and kindness and generosity. Those virtues are, are, are the H2O of our mind. The delusions are the pollution. So at a very and, fundamental but, level, uh, Rabina, I'm sorry, so, so that does mean then that, like, so when we say, well, life is suffering, but at a very fundamental level, it's not. No, it, when you remove delusions, life is not suffering. Yeah, yeah. But, no, but the Buddha's point is, if we're caught up in the, in the thrall of samsara, having delusions and the three levels of suffering, then that is, we are in the nature of suffering. But once you rid the mind of the first kind of suffering, you don't have the gross things happen. When you rid the mind of attachment, you don't, you don't have the suffering of change. And when you realize emptiness, you don't need to come back to samsara, baby. But if you've added bodhicitta to it, you choose to come back and then life is not suffering for you because you're like an illusion for you because you're there for sentient beings. And then it's not suffering because you're rid of delusions. 
Okay, good. Yes. Yeah, no, thank you. Because it, 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 it's just come to me as quite, it's like a, an experiential quality of being. I mean, if life were actually fundamentally at all levels crap, then, then, well, then what's the bloody point of anything? And you couldn't change it, darling. That's the whole yeah. point. That's the whole yeah. point. Exactly. And, that's, and that's Buddha's amazing finding. That yeah. yet, where we are now with delusions and the life we get, that is suffering. And rebirth is the result of attachment. So when you realize emptiness and finally achieve your nirvana, you don't need to be reborn and you will not be, be reborn in samsara. But if you've got body cheating, you will choose to be reborn. Okay. That's Thank the point. You. Thank you. So life is in the nature of suffering unless you've got body cheating and emptiness. Put it that way. Okay, yeah, yeah. And that's the body suffers. I mean, the Hinayana Ahans have done the wisdom wing and they finally realize emptiness and in one life or other, you will, you will achieve your own cessation of suffering and its causes and just naturally, you will not come back. Just naturally, you will not come back. But if you've got bodhicitta, you will choose to come back. That's the radical difference. Okay. And then life is not suffering for you. It can't be. So in other words, if you think of his holiness, he's always a good example because everybody says he's a Buddha. I mean, his holiness the Dalai Lama is said to be a Buddha, okay, who's chosen to manifest in a human body for the sake of others. Now, if that's true, he cannot be suffering, even though every day you see him when his Tibetans come over the mountains and they come to Dharamsala and he's tears, you know, that's not suffering. That's called compassion. He's not suffering. It is an impossibility. This is a shocking idea to us because we think suffering is compassion. We think suffering is empathy, but suffering is because of delusions. If you don't have delusions, you cannot suffer. People could cut your body one piece at a time, one finger and toe off at a time. It is not possible to suffer because you don't have delusions. This is demented for us. Do you understand, Pia? Yes, I do. Thank you. Thank you. Just understanding the teachings. We've got to study the teachings. This is the logic of it. We've got to yeah. study the, the technology of Buddha's understanding of the universe. You know, that's, that's why it's helpful. No, it is. Thank you. Because I do sort of feel like I, I'm coming also from the Catholic background as well. And that this notion that, well, yeah, like life, this life is hard and we're here for tests and trials. And it sort of it just it qualitatively feels slightly different if you think that the only purpose of your existence is to be, I don't know, put through trials and tests and that at some point you win something. I don't know. I just. I understand, darling. I understand. Yeah. Okay. Anybody else? Thank you, Pia. Anybody else? Any questions? Uh, there's two questions here about equanimity. Um, yep. So Diana has asked, uh, could you please comment on how to apply equanimity to ourselves? Should we look at our afflictions with equanimity? You see, it's a different use of the word equanimity. It's a very, very different use of the word equanimity, and I wouldn't use it like you're using it. So what I would say is this, though. This is back on the, Now we're back on the wisdom wing, and the approach is very different. So, honey, yes, part of our practice, first level of practice, junior school, entry level, grade one, is control the body and control the speech. Do not harm sentient beings. Do not kill. Do not steal. Don't jump on the wrong partner. Blah, blah, blah. Control the servants of our delusions. That's the obvious first level. The next level of practice, like Lama Yeshi says, is be your own therapist. And now you get into touch, get, get in touch with your delusions. You have your hands in your own. Well, I like to say you taste your own vomit. My, one of my friends, a therapist, she says, you've got to have your hands in your own shit whichever you prefer, okay? This is the real inner work of the wisdom wing, where you start to 
unpack and unravel your own mind. So now here, whoever asked that question, who asked the question? What's the name? That was Diana. Diana. Okay, Diana, darling. Good point. So, okay. Part, first of all, it's a bit like you're doing your gardening and you've never heard of botany, but now you start to do your gardening and you start to learn to distinguish between the herbs and the weeds. So beforehand, you never even noticed. You didn't even care, you know. And now you start to know, you learn about the weeds, you learn about the terrible causes, how weeds cause so much suffering and all the future suffering are going to destroy all the flowers and destroy your herbs. Well, you're going to have a disgust for your, your weeds, right? But part of the approach is, because you know they're in there for quite a while, you can't pull them up overnight. You've got to learn to become super familiar with these herbs, with these weeds. You've got to have your microscope on your bloody weeds. You've got to have a version for them because you know they're causing you suffering. The attachment causes you suffering. The depression causes you suffering. They run the show half the time in the head. But you've got to learn. I call them my roommates. We've got to learn to become familiar with them, which means that we often think they're getting worse. And then we've got to learn to live with them. And this is the point, Diana. Yes, we absolutely have to learn to live with them. Our first instinct is to hate our jealousy and hate our depression and hate our anxiety and hate our anger. So we keep adding new roommates, you know, or to all the crazies. So we've got to have this skill to, on the one hand, know that they're poison, know they cause me suffering, but to learn to live with them. It's like the roommates next door. They're not going to leave overnight. They're shouting and yelling. You've got to learn to make friends with them. This is a really powerful shift we have to make. Instead of the usual guilt and hating ourselves, which is what we already do. You've got to learn to know what they are, know how they cause you suffering and want to understand them and work with them. But you've got to learn to make friends with them. Then there won't be so much guilt and shame. And then you won't live in, either live in denial of them or try to make them all go away. And, but you can't. So you've got to make friends with them. So that's, I think, what you're talking about, D Diana, isn't it? And the crucial point is knowing, as the way Buddhism just psychology puts it, they're adventitious. They're not at the core of your being. You can pull these weeds out, but it's going to take a while. So while you're doing the work of gardening every day, you make friends with these crazy weeds. But you you be aware of what they are. You don't give it, you know, you know what their problems are. So that's the attitude. And that is a powerful attitude of self-respect because the crucial point is this the shift that i'm also talking about making the irony of ego right now is that we define ourselves in terms of the delusions we believe the delusions are who i really am that's what we end up with all this self-loathing we have they seem to run the show but we've got to start identifying ourselves with our virtues like i was talking to peer the goodness the validity the clarity the kindness these are at the core of our being they are who we really are this stuff is adventitious it's there we can learn from it but we are, the job the long-term job is to stop identifying with them as being me and to identify with the virtues this is profound practice i tell you and the very identifying ourselves with our virtues is already a method to dis dissipate the delusions. The more power we give the delusions, the more power they take over in our head, you know. So, so accepting uh, what I'm hearing, uh, Robina, accepting once we become aware, like you might, once we become aware of some gross, you know, afflictions that we all have, to, to yeah. accept rather than to build a resistance to them through the Absolutely. We have denial or, I mean, we either hate ourselves, hate those parts of ourselves, or we, we push them, we try to push them away because we can't yeah. stand the pain. 
that's what we've got to confront them and hear them and listen to them and watch them and look at them, make friends with them because we can then learn to defeat them. That's that's a huge, and that means it's really another way to put it is you're learning some self-respect and you're stopping identifying yourself in terms of those delusions, that more and more you're identifying yourself in terms of your virtue and your wisdom and your clarity. Thank you. That's great. Thank you. So it's like we have to treat our mind as like an orphan and really care for, for every really? part. Absolutely, you have to. We've got to, the mind is so enormous and so and so fragile and so enormous. There's so much in there. We've got to really, and the more we see it, I mean, the irony is they even say in all the classic Indian texts, when you're starting to learn the nine, you go through the nine stages of single-pointed concentration, you're developing shamatha. They all say in the text that there's a sign of success at the first of the nine stages of you attempting to get single point of concentration is that you think your mind is getting worse. No, it's just that you're noticing it. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> it's obvious. You think about this. If you never didn't know botany and you vaguely look at the garden, you don't see anything. But as soon as you start to learn botany, you discover all these evil weeds. You thought, my God, I didn't know these. These are so shocking. Like as if you've got new weeds. No, they've always been there. You just haven't seen them. Oh, lovely. Thank you for that analogy. Thank and you. Also, a wonderful one. One of our friends, Roger, an Australian monk, not Lama Zopa's Roger, another Roger. He is a meditator like the 30, 40 years. And he told me like 20 years ago, he was, as after years of retreat, three-year retreats and four-year retreats, he said he was out of his brain with levels of rage and arrogance. He was really despairing. And he went to Lama Zopa and Rinpoche laughed and laughed and laughed and said, fantastic the dirt has to come out the dirt has to come out the dirt has to come out we have got to remember this because mm. every one of us is trying to practice so every one of us is seeing our mind more vividly and we all think we're getting worse no we're not oh that's good thank you thank you thank Diana. you what else um, Rosie was also asking about equanimity. She's asking, how does talking about others destroy our equanimity? Is it because we do it with anger? And is there ever a time that talking about others is okay and in line with our equanimity? Well, this is another, again, this is a different level of a different type of equanimity. This is the equanimity I discussed before, which belongs to the wisdom wing, which is the equanimity of the stability of our own mind. This equanimity here is a completely different understanding. It's related to sentient beings, seeing them as equal. That's not the equanimity we're discussing. But yes, Rosie, let's discuss the one that you're discussing. So this is where, if we look at the very basic levels of practice in the wisdom wing, the very first one is control your body, and control your speech. Now, I mean, most of us might not go around stealing and raping too many people, but we really are good at speech, aren't we? We rabbit on about nothing. We say things that even if we think we're speaking the truth, we're not half the time and confusing people. We we love, as you said, to talk about people. It's one of our favorite activities is talk about people behind their backs because we feel so safe. Or we might abuse people, but you're talking about talking about people. Now, the key point is this, Rosie, the Buddha's first point about karma, forget about the harm we do to others. He's trying to get us to see that any actions that we do with our body and speech that are based on attachment or anger or all the other delusions will do right there, will, no, not yet will, but do right there cause me pain. 
definitely just up, upset our equanimity. And second, will cause me future suffering because we're programming our mind with negative blah, you know. So therefore, the, your question is perfect. When is it appropriate to say, to talk about people? And it usually means bad things. Because if you're going to talk about good things about people, you're not disturbing your mind. It's wonderful. But so then it would be if there's some use, like if the person you're talking to, if they're wanting advice about this person, let's say, let's say we're both sisters and we've got one crazy sister who's a bit deluded and a bit demented, and we've got to talk about her, but we're we've got to have a sincere motivation in talking about her to understand her and to be to know how we're going to deal with her. So the base of it, Rosie, has to be the motivation. It just has to be the motivation. Because if we're really trying to be strict with our body and speech, then we just simply, I mean, even especially the speech, if we can even lead one day and not say one word that's driven by attachment or aversion, which means to rabbit on about nothing, which is attachment, to say things that are not true, which is just nonsense, to, and especially to harsh speech and bad mouthing behind backs. Of course, it's anger that usually defines it. Of course, it's attachment and anger. So if we do do it, it's got to be for a good reason. And there's got to be a benefit to the person you're talking to. That it's the it's the motivation, Rosie. Basically, you with me, Rosie? Um, yes, thank you, Rabina. I've been wondering about that for a while because in my day or everyone's daily life, the main thing that you we all talk about is other people. And um, I wondered, you know, how you actually travel through that in your with your practice. I hadn't yeah. actually gotten to that, so. Um, yeah. So you're saying it depends on purely on your motivation yeah. and how you're thinking about others and whether it's appropriate and how how you manage that when you're sitting, say, with a group of people you know, a group of friends. That's very difficult, Rosie, because people love to talk about each other. And it's all it's not coming from virtue. We love to gossip and talk about each other. So you just got to be very skillful, not be like a policeman. You know, and if you can not to be involved in it and not to sort of be like a policeman or be like a goody goody and start saying more good things. I mean, sometimes maybe it's best just to go if you can't handle it, because sometimes it's just too difficult. But yeah. if you're if it's one on one, then you'd be very wise about it. And it yeah. really makes sense. I always quote about my family. I'm not saying we're all saints. We're not. There are seven siblings and we're all kind of old now. We were very close in age, seven of us. And we're all very volatile, shout and talk loud and busy like me do. My, maybe my brother doesn't. The brother's the last of the seven. I think he's the quietest. Anyway, no wonder with seven bossy sisters, six bossy sisters. Anyway, the point is we used to fight like cats and dogs when we were little because we were, you never had enough money. We all lived in small houses and had to you know, share beds even because they had so many babies so quickly, my mummy and daddy. Anyway, we're just always very volatile and fighting and yelling. And then when we talked on the phone, I talked about Polly to Janet and I talked about Julie to Mary and I can criticise Judy to, Je to Janet. We just naturally did what families do, you know, and we're all very different. But we've got a strong bond. But I would say the last 20 more plus 30, maybe 20 years, there's like a, there's an, a, a conscious decision on all our parts. And like really, it's an agreement that we we never, and we pretty much keep to it, we never talk, and we talk a lot to each other on the phone. I face I FaceTime my different family. We don't say bad things about each other to each other, which is very common in families. And we do not 
speak about things when we are together where we disagree because we've got very different views about many things. So the consequence of this is not frustration. The consequence is it actually enables us to even rejoice in each other's qualities and to be kind to each other, which we naturally didn't do as siblings. We're always, you know, like siblings are very mean sometimes. But, and I mean, and it really makes an, it has made an unbelievable difference in our relationships. We, we, we have lots in common. We find those things that are in common, but we really make this a really pretty much a strong decision. And it's huge, the difference. And when we are together, not that often, it's always wonderful and funny and crack jokes and enjoy ourselves, enjoy each other, you know. And that's a conscious effort to control the speech. Speech is very powerful. Often we speak, we don't even give any value to speech in our culture. We think it doesn't matter, but it's really huge. The difference to yourself and for sure, the difference in families and families. Are, I mean, look at the schisms in families, you know, I mean, it's unbelievable. Mm. Yeah. It's all because of speech, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank Very you, Venerable. That's great. What else, people, darlings? Any questions? Any more questions? Somebody uh, else? Two more questions. Two or three. Uh, three more questions. So Matt is saying it's difficult to fathom how one person is able to hold all beings with genuine love. If we, <laughs> um, if we forget about a stranger's headache in one minute, does a bodhisattva keep thinking about it? And can we think about 7.5 billion people's headaches all at once? <laughs> you can't. I think it's hard to get our head around it. And I, I, I really understand that. It's hard to get your head around it. But all I know is if I can think of examples, if anybody knows Lama Zobrams, he happens to be my teacher, so I know him. But anybody knows him, even if it's not your teacher, he seems to be a really kind of a really classic, evident example of a person who thinks about people all the time. It's hard to even put it into words, you know. I mean, when he teaches, all he teaches about is, is his compassion. He never sleeps. As Roger, his attendant, said for, for Rinpoche, sleep is a disgusting waste of time. He meditates day and night. So meditating means he's doing the job of becoming a Buddha if he's not a Buddha already. And he's never stopping doing things. I mean, apart from all running his 150 or 130, whatever his centers around the world, he's got so many other projects like poor people and animals and homeless people. And he's just... It's like he's got, it's just unbelievable to see how much he does. And when he talks, how much compassion he seems to have and how he talks about compassion. All he can do is kind of like imagine it because they, it is true in their mind, all they're thinking about is not just thinking about the suffering. Now, that's the interesting point. They're not just dwelling on the suffering, but they're always thinking of how to fix it, always thinking of how to help. Like that doctor who's qualified in that tent in the war zone isn't just thinking all the time about the suffering he's seeing. This is the crucial point, I think, because they're developing the wisdom and the power to be able to solve the suffering, to stop the suffering. That's what preoccupies bodhisattvas' minds. If we, this is why we all go crazy because we don't know how to help anybody. We, I mean, we can't help anybody. And so we get overwhelmed. So that when we don't have the methods, then then we get overwhelmed and we'll go kill ourselves, forget about anything else. But if you've got methods, and this is what the bodhisattvas are doing, they're, because they're developing this wisdom of more and more power in their mind, and even this is where it sounds like science fiction as well, but the lowest level bodhisattva, the Arya bodhisattva who's realized emptiness, they're already capable of manifesting their mind in a hundred different bodies 
around the world simultaneously. Now, I know this sounds like science fiction. It's all explained how this is possible, you know. And by the time they get to becoming a Buddha, they're able to manifest in millions of bodies throughout universes to be of benefit to sentient beings according to the needs of sentient beings. So it's a whole different kettle of fish. What's the other question? Um, Lorna is saying... I had a question. What's your, what's your question, Lorna? Uh, yeah, Lorna was asking, she doesn't understand the suffering of change. Could you please... Okay, good, Lorna. Let's talk about it, darling. Okay, let's, that's a good point. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, I use the best analogy is the junkie, Lorna. And we're thinking that we're all junkies because we've all got attachment. And so our attachment is, is, is what, is what a, addiction is. Addiction is attachment. It's just a question of degree. That's all. So we just imagine we're all junkies. So the junkie who's got the suffering of suffering is the junkie who can't get the junk. So that's a nightmare. They're going crazy, aren't they? That's the suffering of suffering. That's really like tremendous suffering because they can't get what their attachment wants. Do you understand my point, Lorna? It's like a nightmare. Now look at the other junkie who has just had the fix. It looks like joy and bliss, doesn't it? It looks like they don't have the first, they don't have the first kind of suffering. But if you but but look at the happiness that they are experiencing, what's the consequence of that? It will gradually change and turn into the first kind of suffering. So getting what attachment wants is just a temporary fix, is a temporary a laying of the pain because when you eat the chocolate cake initially it's delicious but we're not satisfied because attachment is never satisfied it's like a disease and attachment no matter what it gets so the first mouthful of cake is delicious it does bring happiness but then you're not satisfied so you want the second mouthful and then that's not enough and you want the third mouthful and all the time the attachment is anticipating the happiness to come that you're convinced will come at some point before you know it You've eaten four pieces and now you want to vomit. So the suffering in the beginning was what we call pleasure. But because we're not satisfied, we keep eating the cake like the heroin. And then you end up with the first kind of suffering, a stuffed stomach and you want to vomit. And the next day you forget all about the vomit and the stuffingness, the stuffed. And then you look at the cake again and you get all excited, believing it'll bring you happiness and you try again. And Buddha says we've been doing this for eons. So as my so mother used Hang on, one more thing. My mum used to say about food, because I'm attached to food, this is the point. The, so the point is Buddha's saying you do get some pleasure when you get the cake, but all it leads to if you keep eating it, because you're never going to be satisfied, is being stuffed, which is the first kind of suffering. But the most painful one of all is, as my mother used to say, Bobsy, she'd say, as she called me, the more you get, the more you want. That's the real pain of the, of the suffering of change. It, it, not only do you don't get satisfaction from the cake, you get more craving for more cake. And it's a bottomless pit. Right. So it's, a, it's an, an, an issue of in, unsustainability yeah, of the happiness. Just, like it's a transitory yeah, thing. It's stable. It doesn't last precisely. Now, the thing is, we know the happiness we get doesn't last. But if we look at our minds, Lorna, we are desperate 
for it to last. You know, when we get a, you fall in love or you get the boyfriend or the job, you say, finally, I found happiness. When we cling to it as if it will last, but because it's unstable and there's more subtlety to it than we're, we're discussing, it will not last and then we're devastated again. And we look at our experiences and we can see this, but because it's the only, this is the thing I think, because the only method we have in samsara, the way Buddha would say, to get happy feelings is to get an object of attachment. We don't know how else to get happy feelings. And this is the point that I was discussing with Pia. Buddha's saying, hey guys, I found a method for you to get happy feelings that won't change into suffering. And that is to get rid of the attachment. So in other words, there's big things in the way. I can't see Lorna's face. There it's gone. In other words, we think happiness, happy feelings, are what we get when we get what attachment wants. Buddha says, no, 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 guys. Happiness, is the point to Pia, happiness is what you're left with that won't change into suffering when you've given up attachment. So the analogy of the people who have the nice life and the yeah. people who don't have a good life. So the and we should have more compassion for the people with the nice life. Is that because what would be the antidote for someone who has a beautiful life? Uh, would that be to sow so more positive good yeah, seeds what, 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 and? So even if we compare ourselves, Lorna, relatively speaking, we have very blissful lives, most of us. We have a house, we have family, we have friends, we have food, we have all, I mean, we're really like 1% of the universe to get things that you want when you want them, like a miracle. So then mm -hmm. nothing wrong with having the joy, have the happiness, delight in our past virtuous karma that created this happiness and not waste a single second of it and keep creating more virtue. That's the point, not rest on our laurels, you know. Right. right. That's the Got point. You. So don't get guilty about it. Be delighted that we created virtue and generosity and morality in a past life, which is why we have a happy life now. But then you make sure we sow more seeds and then use it to help others. Then we're using it for the path. Then it's then it's fantastic. Okay. I you understand. understand. Thank you. Good Great. Wonderful. Good Time to go in almost in a minute. Ravina, um, Nana wanted to ask about the mudra that we did at the beginning, the, the Buddhist gang sign. Well done. So, where's Nana? Where is she? She's in, Nana's in the middle of the bush. She's in Europe. She got up early. My God. Poor, poor Nana. Where are you, Nana? You're in Sweden. Or Hello. Sweden. Hello, darling. I'll show um, you. I have an What time are you now? I'm at... Uh... 20 to 4. In the morning. Well done, girl. Yeah. <laughs> so listen, darling, this mudra, it's, the, it's, oh, meant to, it's meant to be a representation of the universe. So the universe, according to Buddhist cosmology, is not what we learn in geography, I promise. It's, we've got, so we've got, okay, I'll show you. You've got to, it's going to, it's going to be difficult to show you. So get your two hands and you're going to try and, so get your, take your two, these fingers and take your two fat fingers and stretch them across. Now I can't do it. I've forgotten how to do it. Oh, what happened? I'm now confused. I'm now lost. I don't know what to do. Oh, here we go. Here, look. Can you, you have to follow me? So you've got to try oh. and get, get your, try and make your palm as flat as your two palms as flat as you can. 
like, okay. like this. You get your, this finger and grab the fat finger of the other hand and then get this finger and grab the fat finger and push them out, pull them out. And then the same with your thumbs, grab the little fingers and stretch them out. And then the two ring fingers. Oh, darling, it's too difficult online. Look at you. you oh, can't yeah. know. It's too difficult <laughs> online. It's too difficult. I'll tell you, maybe I can send you a link to it. I'll try and do it tomorrow. We'll do it tomorrow. Don't worry about it. Okay. Anyway, represent the, represent the universe. Like really good with their hands, you know, it's very nice. We'll do it another time, darling. We'll work it out. Okay, okay. other questions. Thank you. Other questions, darling. Um, yes, Jenny is asking, and Jenny, you might you might like to clarify it, but Jenny is asking, um, dear Venerable Rubina, can you please kindly give us Bodhisattva vows and five precepts tomorrow? Okay. The five precepts, okay, there's different levels of practice and there are different levels of vows. So the very first level, which is the wisdom wing, they are the vows of what they call individual liberation. They're the vows that are the basis of the practices that help you get out of samsara. That's the first level. The next level are the vows of the compassion wing, and they are called the bodhisattva vows. And there's many more of those. And then more than that, the most advanced, there are the vows of tantra. So tomorrow we're going to do refuge, which belongs to the wisdom wing and give the five precepts, which belongs to that level of practice. We won't be doing the bodhisattva vows tomorrow. That could be another time, but not tomorrow. Okay. Any other questions? Um, I think that's all that's here in the chat at the moment. Oh, oh, sorry, Lakshmi was just um, wanting clarification. It might've been answered Lakshmi, but um about the suffering of change. So Lakshmi is just asking, is it the case that that which my mind labels as pleasure is actually a delusion and a kind of poison? Is that correct? Yeah, that's, that's the way, I mean, if you if you listen to Lama Zobra teach about it, he does it at a quite a subtle level. That yes, it's sort of like, I think the, that's why the, the junkie one is a good analogy. Anybody who's not a junkie or an alcoholic, I'm not trying to be rude about people, but because there's such intense attachments and because heroin and alcohol are so harmful if you look at an alcoholic who's you know shaking out of the suffering of suffering because they can't get the alcohol and then look them have the alcohol it's sort of clear that what they call pleasure is like a nightmare it's really like intense suffering but it's the alleviation of a much worse suffering so it's so then because we are so familiar with happy feelings the way we get them now as a ba on the basis of getting an attachment object we just don't notice that it's actually a really gross level of happiness that's all it's a question of degree you know that's all so yes it is not like a delusion happiness is not a delusion but the happiness we get now like the happiness of the junkie or the happiness of the alcoholic is very contaminated by the extreme attachment so that i mean we can see this if a person has got i mean attached to food attached to anything the seeming pleasure that you get when you get the object to anybody else who doesn't have that attachment it looks really gross do you understand what I'm saying? The pleasure they have looks really tormented, and it's true. They say the attachment we, the, the pleasure we get now on the basis of attachment objects is a really kind of like contaminated pleasure, and it's true. You can see it if you think of an alcoholic or or an or or a, or a junkie as an example. Do you understand? I mean, I remember looking at one of those shows 
the television programs about people who are addicted to eating food and who get very fat, like 600, 500 kilos or something, 400 kilos. And it's really obvious if you look, not being rude, we should analyze as human beings, we're all the same. That the suffering, like one fellow, it was, you could see it was exactly, he was a junkie. His mind was totally tormented. And there he was lying in this bed, 400, 500 pounds, eating 20 meals a day. And it was like just trying to, it was just, it, I mean, to call that pleasure is like grotesque, but that's the level of it. And so the level of our pleasure is like that compared to a person who's given up attachment and whose mind is joyful and blissful and full of compassion. So it's all a question of degree, you know, but it's hard to see where we are ourselves because we can't compare. Do you understand? And this is why, you know, when you've like, when your mind has got more equanimity, and this is the first kind of equanimity in your mind, meaning you've calmed your delusions down in worldly terms, you look rather boring. You're quite content just to be at home. You don't want to rush off to parties and have 14 boyfriends. You're not up and down like a yo-yo. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because you've subdued your attachment, but your mind is more joyful, more fulfilled, more content, but it appears kind of boring initially. It appears like boring happiness. Do you understand? So we just have to observe our minds and try to just develop. And even if we look in the, you know, and, and yeah, just have, are we, are we, well, I think we're communicating, both Lorna and Lakshmi. I think it's a really good question. We've got to look at carefully at this because it's not evident initially, you know. And then as we develop, when we start to see our crazy attachment at ever more subtle levels, even if it's really subtle in comparison with somebody else's attachment, it feels so horrific because you're seeing it ever more subtly. You're seeing your mind ever more subtly. And that's all we can do. That's what practice brings. You get more and more subtle wisdom, more and more subtle development. And we, all we can do is hear it first theoretically, study the teachings, and then slowly with analysis and with meditation, observe our mind. There's no shortcut. We've got to see it in our own mind. That's the crucial point. And then be where we're at and enjoy and then learn to just live with it. And that's why having the Bodhisattva path is so important. Because given that we haven't given up attachment to food and comfort and clothes and all the other things, then, you know, we're going to do them. So at least we can then make sure we have a pure motivation. This is why bodhicitta should come in every day, remembering bodhicitta. Why am I eating my food? Because I want to be healthy so I can help others. Just having that small thought completely mitigates that action. If you just, you know, that's where the bodhicitta motivation, we'll talk more about this tomorrow. This is like a real saving grace it makes it enables us to transform what is normally actions of attachment into practice it's really skillful that's where you can transform everything we do every day by remembering a, having a pure motivation or beginning to see it as having no inherent nature beginning to understand impermanence that's how we transform our lives i mean most of us aren't qualified to give up sex drugs and rock and roll and go to the mountains you know so we can redeem our lives by adding bodhicitta into the mix and this is what lama zopa never stops teaching us never and it's just skillful means you know Otherwise, just misery. And we've got to redeem everything. I mean, I'm having a conversation recently with one of my friends in the San Francisco Center. And we we're talking about this attitude of having bodhicitta for everything we do. 
And she said, well, how can I have Bodhicitta when I have to watch, when I watch Netflix all day? How can I have Bodhicitta for that? In other words, we are so neurotic that we think, oh, I can't offer Netflix. How can I have watch Netflix with a good motivation? In other words, we feel we've got to be guilty. And I said, don't be so ridiculous. You're going to either watch Netflix with guilt and attachment or you're going to decide, okay, I'm going to relax. I'm not a greatest yogini yet. I'm going to watch a movie. I'm going to relax so I can see people. I'm going to watch the movie, learn about people's minds and help me become a better human being. Who would not rather have that motivation than to sit there being guilty? We're so ridiculous. We almost feel we have to be bad, you know, but we can redeem anything. I mean, this is even where I remember Lama Zopa was, this is years ago. Years ago, one of my friends in Australia, Nun, was helping one woman who wanted to have an abortion. So, you know, of course, Buddhist viewers is killing, whatever, whatever. And, and the woman decided she was going to have the abortion. So this nun rang Lama Yeshi and Lama Yeshi rang the girl and, and gave her her meditation about Tara, on Tara, in order to help her when she was going to have the, 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 the you know, when she was going to have the abortion, to gave her a meditation on Tara to do. I mean, how kind Lama was, you know, to help her kind of set us feeling guilty, at least do something virtuous with it, you know, by thinking of the baby, doing Tara meditation, whatever. There's ways we can do this, not lying to ourselves. It, and this is also proving that things don't have an inherent nature. This is also helping us understand emptiness. If we're very stuck in our mind and think, oh, Netflix is bad, I can't redeem it, then you're lost, you know. Things don't have an intrinsic nature. And that's when we get very fundamentalist. Well, this is bad and that is good. No, it's not like that. So we have to recognize where we're at, offer our food, enjoy the food, even offer the enjoyment, offer our clothes, offer ourselves, offer our jobs. And then we become a more happy human being and we can be a benefit to others. And then we lessen the delusions. It's a different method for lessening the delusions. You know, it's like I said before. Diana, learning to live with all the delusions, learn they're still negative, they're still harming you, but you've got to live with them and stop beating yourself up for them. It's just skillful means, you know. You understand, people? We'll be very wise with ourselves. Remember when Lama Yeshi first met Westerners, hippies, he said, you people don't even know how to be happy. You know how to be miserable. And it's true, you know. We're ridiculous. We love to be miserable. We love to hate ourselves. We love to be negative. We have to learn to be positive. It's very powerful. Anyway, darlings, what else? Maybe we can finish soon. My voice is running out. <laughs> uh, just two two more questions, Venerable Rabina. Um, Dave, you have a quick question, Dave says. What's your question, Dave? Good, Good Dave. Talk to me. Hi, Rabina. Um, yeah, very quickly, just uh, with the Bodhisattva vows, can they be uh, taken online? Because, you know, I've been um, practicing what the book you sent me and preparing to take them. And I've got this beautiful vision of waiting till you're at Copan one day and I come to Copan and they all, you know, all, you know. So the, the way I, I mean, for me, some people don't want to do it. Like our Lama, Geshe Sharab in our center here in Santa Fe does not want to do these things online, but I'm taking Lama Zopa's lead and I'm taking His Holiness Adela Lama's lead. They do these things online. So I figure why not, you know, so we're going to do the refuge. So if people really, I mean, the Bodhisattva vows I don't give very often, but I've been given permission by Lama Zopa. But I mean, if it's really, people are really serious and some people have asked for, we can do, I mean, I do, I will do that. I mean, I'll put you on that list. I forget, Dave. I think I'm on my list. We can definitely do it at some point. We definitely can do okay. that. Yeah. 
I, as always, keep in touch via the email. So, yeah, yes, thank no, you. Definitely do that. Definitely. Good. Okay. What else, darling people? Uh, final question was from Christina, and she's asking, could you please talk more about the connection between the mind and the body? Is this something that we can only experience or observe through meditation? Okay. So the, 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 I'll give you the Vajrayana analysis. A, a, a sort of brief description of the relationship between the mental and the physical. Okay. So, of course, this is a bit similar. The Vajrayana model of the body and mind, the body is a bit similar to the Chinese style and the Ayurvedic style, you know, which is used to be maybe in the Western world centuries ago. So we've got they call gross consciousness, which is our sensory consciousness. And then we have gross body, which is this bag of bones that we have right here. So, of course, this is mostly all what we talk about in the modern world. But this body and mind are inextricably linked. It's fairly evident, isn't it? So you've got I, for example, you've got the five sensory consciousnesses. That's the five parts of your mind, which is not physical, that, that work in dependence upon the five parts of your body. So the eyeball, in Buddhist terms, the eyeball doesn't see things. The eye consciousness is part of your mind that depends upon the eyeball and all those things not working nicely to have a cognition of, let's say, color, because eye consciousness cognizes color, for example. So you've got your eye consciousness, which is part of your mind that works along with the eyeball. So there's this intimate and inextricable relationship. You can't, if you don't have an eyeball, you might have mind, but you, you don't see anything. And if you have an eyeball, but no eye consciousness, you won't see anything. So they've got to be together. This is the Buddhist way. So all the sensory consciousnesses are like that. They work inextricably linked to the body. So clearly, if you think of the mind as, say, anger, that's mind. But look at the effect on the body. I mean, you know, it's like you've got a storm inside of you, isn't it? Your heart is shaking. The blood is rising. The, you know, the eyes are wide. The spit's coming out the mouth. You're shaking and yelling. That's physical. But what, what's causing the body to be shaking is the anger, which is mind. Now, now we get to the subtle level, and that includes the mental states. So this subtle level of mind, and this is the analysis the Tibetan doctors use. Your Tibetan doctor, you've got these 72,000 subtle channels, like a subtle nervous system. Like I said, similar to the Ayurvedic and similar to the, to the Chinese. This is the Vajrayana one, which is coming from the Indians. So this is, and this is also the model the Tibetan medical system uses. So you've got 72,000 subtle channels, subtle nervous system, throughout your entire body and coursing through all those different channels are all these different wind energies or prana this is the subtle physical energy and it is inextricably linked to your different states of mind so of course we talk about a brain in the west we're not discussing the brain here so your states of mind your love your compassion your anger your jealousy there's hundreds of these mental states they're all connected to their own wind energies and they're all coursing through these channels so they have a saying that the mind rides on the winds so this is evident the, the Tibetan doctor she will feel your pulses 
And she will feel the imbalance, let's say, of certain of the wind energies. And she will know that that's linked to your attachment. And that's why you're having panic attacks. So she will give you herbal medicine that will calm down the physical wind energy that will then calm down your attachment that is linked to that physical energy. So all your states of mind are connected to their own, own wind energy. Now, the, the, how we produce ourselves as a person. So like Lama Zopa said in the Kala Chakra Tantric teachings, there are these detailed descriptions of the intimate relationship between internal and external energy. Well, here, that means internal is your mental states, love, attachment, jealousy, and intelligence, all the thousands of mental states. And the body, which is the wind energies. So if he said, even just a, there's this inextricable relationship between the mind and the physical. So even when your mind just gets a little bit angry, as he said, immediately that programs, I'm saying this, programs your mind in the habit to be angry. But what it does immediately is pollute those wind energies. And that eventually ripens as sickness. Because the wind energies is subtle body. Your anger pollutes your wind energies and causes future sickness. Then karmically, even longer term, that eventually impacts upon the external elements, which then causes the imbalance of the external elements like earthquakes and things. Because karmically, the universe is the product of the actions of body, speech and mind of all living beings in the universe. So body and mind are intimately and inextricably linked. So when you purify your mind by practicing thought, positive thoughts every day, you purify your wind energies and then karmically you create the cause to be born with a healthy body. You can even heal your body now because your mind and your winds are intimately, inextricably linked. So that's why saying mantras purifies those wind energies because wind energy is sound. By being silent, by be saying positive words, by refraining from negative words, you don't just don't help other people, you purify your own body and your mind. So does that answer your question? Um, yes, oh, I asked it. Oh, Christina, okay, that yeah. helps then. Um, yeah, I think I, because I was thinking, I, when I think of the mind, because it can be so vast, and then also when you mentioned that once we become enlightened, we can, um, bodhisattvas can move to other bodies. And then I think I'm just becoming. Oh, move to other bodies. They okay. can manifest. Man okay. Okay. When you understand this view that the universe is made of, the universe is made of the four elements. That's it. There's matter. And then there are minds. There's nothing else in the universe. So all matter Wherever there is the four elements, you could say, is a conducive environment for, for beings to live there. So Buddhas and Bodhisattvas have so much power that they can manifest. They've got their own mind and their own wind energies. They can manifest their mind in another body. They can create that body. They can kind of just, in, they can kind of manifest as more than one person. There's this wonderful story about His Holiness, I'll tell you. Lama Zopa told this story years ago. I mean, he is said to be a Buddha. I can't say he is. I'm not clairvoyant, but I'm prepared to trust Lama Zopa and all the other Tibetans. They all say he's a Buddha. But if he is a Buddha, that means, this is this wonderful story. I've told this often. 
back in the early 60s, when after the Tibetans had come into exile, the, the, His Holiness and all the Tibetan lamas were really desperately trying to get land so they could start monasteries so they could carry on the lineages because they didn't want all the lineages to die all the, this the practices to die out you know they need the monasteries and the places so they were negotiating with the indian government the kind indian government to get these hundreds of thousands of acres down in south india which is now like little tibet hundreds of monasteries the lay communities down in south india the, the indians eventually gave them all this forest land so there was that in the middle of these negotiations. And His Holiness's representative from Dharamsala had gone down to Delhi. So it's like 12 hours on the train, you know, and he got, and Delhi is where the government is. And so he, he had a, a meeting organized with the Indian, appropriate Indian minister. And it was really difficult, probably Indian bureaucracy or whatever. And he couldn't get a meeting and he was very frustrated. And he went back to Dharamsala and he told His Holiness he couldn't get a meeting. And His Holiness said, it's okay. You can go back down to Delhi right now. So he went back down to Delhi and that day he went into the, the, the minister's office and the little boy, the Indian minister's little boy was in the office with his daddy. And the Tibetan minister was talking to the little boy and the little boy expressed the wish for a dog. Well, the Tibetan was happy to grease the wheels. Oh, I'll get you a dog, you know. So he went outside and there was a sadhu. What's Diana doing? What's happened, Diana? You're okay? You're moving around. You're all right? What? What do you say? Sorry, it's my dog. My dog is acting up. Sorry. Okay, well, maybe you should turn the video off if you're going to be moving. Turn your video off, darling. It's just, that's right. There you go. That's better. That's easier. But then you can move in peace. That's a good idea, darling. So, anyway, okay. So then, so then, um, anyway, this holiness, sorry, the Tibetan minister was delighted. So he went outside and he saw a sadhu who had a dog. And he said, can I buy your dog? He said, yeah, of course. So he sold the dog and the, and the little dog. And the, and the Tibetan went back and gave the little dog to the, to the little Indian boy. And he was completely happy. He ran to his daddy and daddy was happy. And the wheels were greased and everything worked. So anyway, as Lama Zopa said, the sadhu and the dog were manifestations of the Dalai Lama's mind. Now, that doesn't mean, Christina, that he was born, the sadhu was born in a mother's womb or the dog, they can manifest. They're like magicians. They can manifest. And the, the lowest level bodhisattva can manifest in at least 100 different bodies. And when you understand this view, this is the Vajrayana, how the, the structure of the universe, these four elements and minds, and once you've gone beyond all delusions, you can do what you damn well like. You can manipulate the universe. You can manifest, you can manifest an entire universe if you had to. In other words, this is, I find, a very interesting, extra interesting point. You know, you can you could create a universe, but the point is it would be the manifestation of your mind. So that dog would have looked like a dog, acted like a dog, eaten like a dog, and it wouldn't be sitting there in a corner with a halo kind of going, winking at you, I'm really the Dalai Lama. You'd never know if you weren't clairvoyant that it was in fact the Dalai Lama's mind. So that means it was not a dog. That Sadhu was not a regular person. They they pretend. I mean, Dalai Lama himself is he. If he is a Buddha, he is not a human being. He's pretending to be a human being. I'm not joking. Because once you realize, we're talking to Pia. Once you've cut the root of delusions, even the wisdom wing, you don't need to be reborn. But once you have become, you are a Bodhisattva or a Buddha. You choose to be reborn. But you but you look like an ordinary human being. You act like an ordinary human being, but you are not a human being. You're a Buddha. 
This is why to have to try to cultivate pure view of our gurus whom we're seeing as a Buddha, you know. Are we communicating, Christina? What's happened? You're frozen. Christina's frozen. Are some of you frozen or not? Christina, did you hear me? I Christina looks like she might have frozen Venerable Rabina. Okay. Anyway, so it's time to go home. We'll see you all tomorrow. Thank you, Venerable Rabina. Thank you. Okay. So we never give up. Point is never give up all this crazy to think of that you can man to imagine you can manifest your mind in a hundred forms simultaneously sounds like science fiction. But it's all in the teachings. It's all there. So you take it as your working hypothesis and you go towards it, you know, one step at a time. I mean, one step at a time, babies, okay? And we delight. We've done this about this analysis. These seeds we've planted. We rejoice. And may these seeds ripen in the future as our Buddhahood so we really can be a benefit. Okay? Thank you. Thank you. Ke pa nyam pa me pa yang gong ne gong du pa ba sho. Okie doke. Thank you, everybody. Incredible, Rabina. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you. 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 Thank you.